What do you call a party that says holding a Senate trial for a former president is unconstitutional, but has no trouble working to undercut a democratically held election? You'll find the answer on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 359 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. There was a time, back when Donald Trump incited a mob that went on to storm the Capitol, where it seemed that the Republican Party was ready to turn on its leader. In a speech on the Senate floor, there was no question where GOP leader Mitch McConnell was pointing his finger. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. And while House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy wanted no part of impeachment... That doesn't mean the president is free from fault. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. But the time to strike was then, when disgust and contempt for Trump were at their highest. Now, it's gone. Ancient history. 45 of the 50 Senate Republicans, including McConnell made it clear they see a Trump impeachment trial unconstitutional, sending a clear signal that the odds of 17 Republicans joining all 50 Democrats to convict are between none and none. And where was McCarthy last Thursday? Visiting Trump at the former president's estate at Mar-a-Lago, there to kiss his ring, for starters, to hope the ex-pres has no hard feelings for what McCarthy said, and to make sure they can work together to win back the House next year. Any talk of the GOP splitting with Donald Trump, unrealistic to start with, is just not happening. But it's more than that. With or without Trump, the Republican Party has embraced the ism that is attached to his name. This didn't get much coverage, but Mary Miller, the freshman Republican from Illinois, actually said this at a pro-Trump rally in D.C. the day before the more destructive rally. This is the battle. Hitler was right on one thing. He said, whoever has the youth has the future. Our children are being propagandized. Today, I want to encourage you to do two things. Fill your children's minds with what is true and right and noble. And then they can overcome evil with good because they can actually discern between what is evil and what is good. One might think that a politician listing good things about Adolf Hitler is not particularly smart. Miller clearly hasn't learned that lesson yet. And the fact that many in the House GOP are far more upset with Liz Cheney the number three Republican from Wyoming, who was one of the ten who broke party ranks to impeach Trump, than they are with Marjorie Taylor Greene, she of the incendiary and hate-filled conspiracy rants, is just one part of the new reality. You all know Matt Gaetz. He's that Trump robot from Florida who paraded around on the House floor early in the pandemic wearing a gas mask to mock the attention the Democrats and the media were giving to the dangers of the virus. Last week, he flew out to Cheyenne at the behest of an anti-Cheney lawmaker to denounce her at a rally at the state capitol. 
I think if Liz Cheney had a rally with all of her supporters, they could likely meet inside one of the elevators in the Capitol and still have plenty of room for social distancing. It was a sight to see. Gates was so proud of his performance, giving a self-satisfied little swagger with each zinger. It was like watching Eric Trump speak at a campaign rally and thinking everyone was there to see him. I'll, I'll confess to you, this is my first time in Wyoming. I've been here for about an hour, and I feel like I already know the place a lot better than your misguided representative, Liz Cheney. Now in Washington, D.C., the private insider club of Joe Biden, Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, Nancy Pelosi, and Liz Cheney. They want to return our government to its default setting, enriching them, making them more powerful at our expense. But we can stop them, and it starts right here in Wyoming. In the end... The House GOP conference ignored Gates's rants and voted 145 to 61 on Wednesday to keep Cheney as the party's number three Republican in the House. It came after she refused to apologize for her vote to impeach Trump. At the same meeting, Kevin McCarthy made it clear he had no intention of punishing Marjorie Taylor Greene, despite everything she said and wrote. Just for fun, here's an excerpt from a 2019 rally addressed by Green, not yet a member of Congress, where she talks about Nancy Pelosi and treason. It's a crime punishable by death, is what treason is. Nancy Pelosi is guilty of treason. When Liz Cheney and not Marjorie Taylor Greene becomes the enemy, you know we're in trouble. Later in the show, we're going to talk about Sarah Huckabee Sanders and her bid to become governor of Arkansas. And it leads to this week's trivia question. Who was the last former White House press secretary to later run for office? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll reveal the answer and winner of our last trivia question later in the show, so stay tuned. The list of presidents who were impeached is just three. But there's also a more select list. The number of presidents who were impeached twice. Donald Trump has that all to himself. We could talk about how impeachable it was to impeach Bill Clinton for lying about his involvement in a sex scandal, and to impeach Andrew Johnson for firing the Secretary of War without the consent of Congress. True, for some, anything involving the Secretary of War was a huge deal. Gentlemen, as your Secretary of War, I... Secretary of War is out of order. Which reminds me, so is the plumbing. Make a note of that. But there's a reason why Trump has reached this pinnacle all by himself. Incitement of insurrection 
says the language of the House impeachment managers, for his role in the January 6th violent siege of the Capitol that left five people dead. One might think that trying to steal an election, subvert our democracy, that that should be considered as impeachable offenses as well. Either way, the trial begins on Tuesday. We've already seen, thanks to a point of order by Kentucky's Rand Paul, that Senate Republicans don't think much of the effort. And with 45 of the 50 calling it unconstitutional, the prospect of finding the necessary 17 to vote to convict is hardly likely. Carl Hulse is the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times, and once again he's about to cover an impeachment trial in the Senate. Carl, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Thanks. Who would have expected that I would cover not only three impeachments, but two pretty much in the same year. It's, so, uh, and, and, and counting. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's see. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, about a year or so ago, um, I was reading the stuff you were writing, and, and, and you wondered whether in this polarized era, impeachment would become a new normal, uh, that, you know, that trying to remove a president will become a more common partisan tool. Have we reached that point? What do you think? Yeah, I think that it's definitely going to be a more regular part of the process. I mean, look, you know, there were hundred and some years between uh, attempts, correct, or almost. Uh, and I think that a one of the new Republican members already filed an impeachment resolution against uh, Joe Biden. Not that that can go anywhere in a Democratic House, obviously, but it just shows you, I think, that uh, impeachment is going to be a regular part of our politics now. And that's not to say that the Democrats uh, weren't within their rights, of course, to move forward with the impeachment here of uh, ex-President Trump, but they impeached him while he was president. And, uh, you know, they feel that they had no choice but to do it after what happened. And of course, to them, it was was a personal attack. A lot of them feel their lives were actually put at risk uh, during that uh, riot on the 6th. So, uh, impeachment is definitely part of the political lexicon now. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the the member of Congress who uh, who offered a resolution to impeach Biden. That was Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, and she did this one day after the inauguration. Which, yeah, I mean, why not, right? Yeah, it's not it's not a real thing, but it shows you where the mindset is of people. Uh, you know, everybody that's just more extreme in Congress now, and that that's a good. Uh, illustration of it. I want to get to Green in a moment, but for now I want to focus on Mitch McConnell. You know, there was a time not long ago where where he seemed to say that he might be open to vote for impeachment. Now, I know a year ago during the first impeachment, he said he was not an impartial juror, but this time it felt different. I noticed that many journalists began writing feverishly that the GOP was breaking with Trump. And then when the Senate agreed to delay the trial for a couple of weeks, the, the momentum seemed to disappear. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that was always uh, a, a thought here that if you did wait, that the anger would die down a bit. You know, Senator McConnell, always an interesting case. I think that his, his comments and some of the leaked comments, you know, it was partially a trial balloon, too. He wanted to see uh, what kind of reaction that got. And guess what? It wasn't a good reaction. Most of his members uh, didn't agree with him. Certainly the voters out there in Kentucky also, I think he got some feedback. So I just heard uh, him say again that he wanted to see 
what the case looked like and listened to the presentation, but he did vote with those who uh, said that this was an unconstitutional process. So I think he was testing the waters a little bit there early on and uh, found out that they were a little too hot, and he uh, backed off. So you think there, there was a possibility that he could have voted yay, but, but the feedback, the blowback that he got from those comments uh, convinced him which way to go. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I think they did. I think it did uh, change his position. Not to say that he still couldn't, you know, if the Democrats put on an overwhelming case. And I had a Democrat tell me today, a senator, who they filed the brief and he called it a blockbuster. Maybe this can convince people. But I think that Senator McConnell, is, he's playing multiple political uh, games going over here right now on how to how to deal with uh, the Trump aftermath, how to deal with the new uh, radicalism of some of the Republicans in the House. And he is, uh, so he's got a lot of balls in the air. But the, I think that he, uh, as I said, he, he heard, the, he tried his trial balloon and it got popped. But I still get the sense that McConnell thinks there should be consequences for what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, uh, certainly for people... Uh, ransacking the Senate, you know, to Mitch McConnell, there's probably no more sacred ground on the planet than the Senate chamber. And I'm sure every time he sees that uh, video of the of the guy sitting up in the uh, presiding officer's chair and the people rifling through the desks, I'm sure it outrages him newly. Uh, so uh, I do think he probably thinks Trump should be punished for this. But he's also, you know, a real political pragmatist, uh, maybe the ultimate political pragmatist. And if he thinks it's going to cost him his majority in two years, then, uh, you know, he's not going to go in that direction. For Mitch McConnell right now, it's all about the uh, 2022 election. Uh, to Mitch McConnell right now, the 2022 election is, is everything he, with a 50-50 Senate, the Republicans only need a net gain of one seat, one seat to get control back. And that's what he'll be focused on. How much sway do you think he has with his fellow Republicans? Because he pleaded with them not to vote to reject the election results last month. But Josh Hawley and, and Ted Cruz and others ignored him and went right ahead. Yeah, I, you know, the senators will listen to their leadership, but they're going to make their own uh, decisions based on their own political calculation. You know, Hawley made a calculation there that uh, it was going to be good for him to uh, be seen as leading the charge on blocking the electoral vote. And then Ted Cruz jumped on there, too. But so they, you know, he, he, it's, he doesn't have complete control over them. That's, that's for sure. They're going to they're go their own way. But he is influential with the majority of them. If he were to actually uh, come out and say he was going to vote to convict President Trump, he would he would bring Republican votes along with him. When we'll look at the impeachment impeachment vote in the House, what do you think was the bigger headline that that 10 Republicans broke from their president and voted to impeach or that after all that happened, 197 Republicans decided against impeachment? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the night before the vote, when a few Republicans started coming out and saying they were going to vote to impeach, I think there was a sense among some people that, hey, this is the dam is breaking, groundswell here. I did not think that. I thought that they would get 
some Republicans. But I'm still, I, I agree with you to some extent, but I'm still surprised that not more Republicans did it, considering, you know, that it happened in their in their office space, more or less. But Liz Cheney, though, was a big headline, uh, the fact that the number three leader in the House was going to vote to uh, convict the president from such a you know, prominent political family. I mean, that was a big deal. So also it was more, there were more, maybe twice as many Republicans in that 10 than uh, Democrats who voted to impeach Bill Clinton in 1998. So at the time I said, well, uh, Trump has the biggest bipartisan impeachment in modern history in the House. So it is different. But still, my goodness, it's it's like, why wasn't it a hundred more Republicans given all that happened? You know, Politics are so extreme now, you know it, and these folks run in districts in the House, and those districts, a lot of them are overwhelmingly uh, full of Trump supporters, and I think that some of the folks who did vote to impeach, they're under a lot of pressure right now, and I mean, I think that a lot of uh, members of the House recognize that uh, and said, "I I don't want any part of that. You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I can count, and you can count, and I, we all can count, but I'm thinking that if you can only get 10 in the House, how in the world do you get 17 in the Senate? Uh, well, present a really strong case and make the argument that uh, there's nothing constitutionally wrong here. But I, I think that the argument the Republicans in the Senate are going to make is going to be a process argument. They don't want to defend Trump. They don't want to defend the rioters. They want to say that this is unconstitutional and improper and vindictive since Trump is no longer in office. But there's plenty of precedent that says that you could go ahead and have a trial of somebody who's already left office. And I think the argument that how would you hold presidents and other high public officials accountable at the end of their tenure if you didn't have something like this, it would have to just be criminal, I guess. I, I look for Republicans mainly to say, well, Trump, he helped instigate this and uh, he he was irresponsible, but we can't uh, act because he's no longer in office. What do you make of Trump encouraging primary challenges to senators like John Thune or, or governors like Mike DeWine and, and Doug Ducey and Brian Kemp? This is their weapon, right? This is that he's learned... Uh, over the years, this is how you get you pay back, and uh, I think that he'll try and do that. I mean, the question for for us in some ways is, what's Trump in 18 months? Is he still a potent political force? Can he still cause trouble for people in primaries? Can he recruit candidates and raise money? Then he, he can probably uh, continue to be a big influence with Republicans. But if some of this, you know, turns out to be hollow, that I think people are going to pay less and less attention to. I don't know. When I watched when I watched uh, Kevin McCarthy go down to Mar-a-Lago, it just seems like Trump didn't, has not lost a step at all with the loyalty and the demanding of the loyalty of Republicans in Congress. Certainly the House Republicans, yeah. right? But, you know, Mitch McConnell has taken a different tack, and he hasn't talked to Trump, and he's been critical of Trump. Uh, McConnell did do something that I, was kind of surprising this week, uh, his scathing criticism of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, he offered it in a statement, and I'm going to let CNN's Anderson Cooper read it. Loony lies and conspiracy theories are cancer for the Republican Party and our country. 
somebody who suggested that perhaps no airplane hit the Pentagon on 9-11, that horrifying school shootings were pre-staged, and that the Clintons crashed JFK Jr.'s airplane is not living in reality. This has nothing to do with the challenges facing American families or the robust debates on substance that can strengthen our party. Carl, were you surprised by what McConnell said? Um, I mean, do you think it was a message to Kevin McCarthy and other Republican leaders that you shouldn't remain silent when it comes to someone like her? You know, I was surprised, and I was surprised mainly because Mitch McConnell doesn't really usually deign to dabble in house politics. (laughs) I think he thinks that's beneath him. But I think it goes to my earlier point that this is about keeping Republicans viable in the suburbs, viable with women, uh, not showing that they're extreme. I think he was trying to lay down a marker. It's like, this is a problem in the House. There's a few Looney Tunes or whatever he he said. And uh, he wants to tell people that's not the norm. I think, again, this was about less about her and more about 2022 and where he thinks the Republican Party needs to be positioned. Mitch McConnell doesn't say much, but when he says something, uh, it can have an impact. Carl Hulse is the chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Carl, give me your best guess. In the next four years, how many presidential impeachments? One more. (laughs) Carl, thanks so much. It's always great having you on the program. Thanks, Ken. When Donald Trump arrived in Washington in 2017, the Republican Party controlled the White House, the House, and the Senate. Four years later, they have lost all of that. Similarly, four years ago in Arizona, when Trump carried the state, Senator John McCain was winning re-election to a sixth term by 13 percentage points. The other Senate seat was held by Jeff Flake, also a Republican. After four years of Trump, Democrats now have both Senate seats. In 2018, when Kirsten Sinema won Senator Flake's seat, it was the first win by a Democrat in 30 years. In 2020, astronaut Mark Kelly won the other seat, formerly held by the late John McCain, giving Democrats both Senate seats in Arizona for the first time since 1952. And to top it all off, Joe Biden defeated Trump in the state. Yes, by a narrow margin, but the first time a Democrat carried the state in a presidential contest since 1996, and only the second time since Harry Truman in 1948. And how has the Arizona Republican Party responded? Is it trying to figure out how to recapture the hearts of the voters? No, it censured Cindy McCain, the senator's widow, Jeff Flake, the former senator, and Doug Ducey, the current Republican governor. Here to describe this surreal bit of news and the rapid fall of the state party is Ron Hansen, the national political reporter for the Arizona Republic. Ron, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Yeah, Ken, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. And, you know, every time I think of what's happening in, in, the, in the Republican Party nationally, you're getting it in spades in, in Arizona, especially with the, the wings of the party and the, the censuring and enemies list, things like that. But I think when we start off this conversation, we should remind everyone that the leadership of the Arizona Republican Party was Trumpian even before Trump. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the really important details. Arizona has a a long history of being a conservative state, uh, a red state. But within that, it it also has this sort of uh, uh, long history also of, um, you know, facing um, folks who had challenged Barry Goldwater. You know, now he's venerated as this uh, icon of conservatism, but, you know, he faced a lot of criticism within his own party back when he was in office. John McCain certainly went round and round with the uh, the folks in his party, even as late as his last run for office in 2016. And so it, it brings us to this sort of current moment when, once again, the Republican Party in Arizona is facing uh, significant issues of what direction they want to take in the post-Trump era. And they've really sort of uh, doubled down on Trumpism. So if President Trump is gone, Trumpism is very much still with the party. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned the party's uh, problems or or difficulties with John McCain. I mean, he was also censured back in 2015 because he wasn't conservative enough. This is well before Donald Trump ever arrived on the scene, and the state party chair Kelly Ward not only never liked McCain, but she ran against him in the primary in 2016. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's just something that there's been this sort of hostility towards some of the most visible figures in Republican politics here in Arizona. Even with Doug Ducey, for example, this is not really new. Uh, Last year at the state Republican annual meeting, this is pre-COVID, right? This is January of 2020. The governor was sort of shouted into silence by folks within the Republican Party who were upset at him primarily because of his support for red flag laws. Uh, That's the the effort to restrict access to firearms for people who are deemed a threat to themselves or others. And the governor had to stop speaking while those folks sort of got it off their chest that they were pretty unhappy with him. That's all before he certified the election that, you know, helped ensure the president's uh, re-election went down in flames. Look, Cindy McCain and Jeff Flake both endorsed Joe Biden, so I can understand displeasure with them. But Doug Ducey voted for Trump, worked for Trump. The only one of the other heresies, aside from the the, the gun stuff you just mentioned, is the fact that he had the temerity to uh, declare that Joe Biden won the state. He's censured for following the law. Yeah, I mean, this just has not gone down well. I think there's a longstanding uh, wariness of the governor for people who are especially uh, loyal to the former president. The fact is that Doug Ducey was more of a Scott Walker type. He has a personal longstanding friendship with uh, Vice President Pence that, uh, you know, sort of blossomed when he was the governor of Indiana and Doug Ducey was the young new governor of Arizona. So he had relations, but he didn't have any real connection to uh, to Donald Trump. And as he rode, uh, rose in GOP circles to become president, you know, Doug Ducey sort of warmed up to him, but it was sort of a slow process and, and more of an arm's length kind of thing. And I think that to a lot of conservatives here, uh, the, the arch-Trump loyalist base in, in Arizona, they view Doug Ducey as somebody who just was never on board the Trump train. And his actions in certifying the election 
only validated their concern that they had had all along in their mind. So basically, if you're not 100 percent or 1,000 percent behind Donald Trump, you're an enemy. Yeah, I mean, it kind of works out that way. I mean, they have the same sort of approach to Martha McSally as well. You know, Martha McSally, when she was a House candidate in 2016, kind of kept candidate Donald Trump at arm's length a bit. And, you know, when he was in the White House, she was, you know, really sort of committed to uh, trying to push the Trump agenda, worked with him collaboratively on a number of different things and took a lot of political heat for it. And yet, to a wide swath of very conservative voters here in Arizona, they just never warmed up to her. They would vote for her over a Democratic alternative, but short of that, they, they made no secret that they just they weren't in love with her. You and I are, are too young to remember the state having two Democrats in the Senate at the same time. I guess the question is, is, is Trump to blame? Is, is the state party blaming Trump? Is is Kelly Ward responsible, given the fact that the party is, has not lost its a, a love affair with, with Donald Trump, and yet in the four years since, since he was first elected, both Senate seats uh, are gone. Um, Joe Biden carried the state. Who do you blame? Oh, boy, that's a big one. All right, so uh, one person I, I don't think you can blame, in all fairness, is Kelly Ward, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party. She, you know, has a very checkered history, a very colorful history of, of things that are regrettable statements and actions and such. But I don't think that she really cost them the 2020 election, either for Donald Trump or for Martha McSally. When you look at it, this is sort of uh, the perfect storm of a lot of different factors for Arizona Republicans. Number one, they ran into two excellent Democratic candidates in Kirsten Cinema and Mark Kelly, both of whom were just sort of temperamentally a good fit to appeal to the wide swath of voters who are independents here in Arizona and also very prolific front fundraisers. And so that was a big part of it. We have this sort of changing demographics here that you hear a lot about, that there's a lot of folks who come in from places like California or the Rust Belt. There are also a lot of second-generation Americans now who are from immigrant communities, and um, they are becoming more politically aware and engaged. And when you look at the special antagonism that Donald Trump had for John McCain, which you could construe to be more broadly uh, against those who serve in the military, you know, that's an important demographic here in Arizona as well. There are a lot of people who voted for John McCain for 35 years and just never did uh, like the way that the president talked about him. I think in a close election, it was enough to just kind of push it over the finish line in a state where, you know, Democrats had had so many defeats that um, whatever hesitation they might have had with Joe Biden or either of their Democratic nominees for Senate they were more than happy to take that than the alternative. So I think Republicans had sort of been building toward this moment for a long time. Governor Ducey's term limited. He says he won't challenge Senator Mark Kelly. You know, in addition to the battle for control of Congress nationwide, the future of the Republican Party is going to be on the line in Arizona, probably more so than any other state. Yeah, I think you're right. I I think that, again, the party is in the early stages of trying to reckon with what happened. Uh, There are a lot of people who realize that the way of the last 
two to four years has just not been helpful to the party's long-term vitality. And they want to change that. But the fact is, increasingly, they seem to be excommunicated from the party. And um, they're trying to reclaim their party. But, you know, the activist wing, the grassroots that takes part in things like the Arizona state party politics, these are the folks who tend to be more on the, the fringier side. And it has skewed party leadership toward that more Trump wing. And um, yeah, we've got another Senate race now for Mark Kelly's uh, full term now uh, in 2022. There are folks from Andy Biggs who could run for that, or Doug Ducey's former chief of staff might uh, consider a run for that. Um, you know, and, and that will say a lot about where the, the party wants to go and who really represents the mainstream Republican Party in Arizona moving forward. And we have other things, too. We're going to have a governor's race, and, and there's just uh, the whole redistricting question. We figure to gain a House seat after redistricting. So, you know, what kind of district will that be, and who might occupy it for Republicans? You wonder if if Barry Goldwater or John McCain could could win a Republican primary in, in, in this day and age. <laughs> it's part of the uh, political fantasy league uh, hot stove, I'm sure, Ken. <laughs> Ron Hansen is the national political reporter for the Arizona Republic. Ron, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Ken. It's time to reveal the answer and winner of our last trivia question, which was, Who was the last person who was elected to a House or Senate seat for the first time, but who died before ever getting sworn in? The answer, Keith Thompson. The Republican congressman from Wyoming, Thompson ran for the Senate seat in 1960 that Democratic incumbent Joe O'Mahony was giving up. The 41-year-old Thompson won the seat, but died of a heart attack a month later before he was sworn in. And the randomly selected winner is Steve Delaney of Toledo, Ohio. Steve wins the coveted political junkie button. Don't forget, you can always find our political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. With a 50-50 Senate, every seat is crucial as we head to the 2022 elections. And so the announcement by Ohio Republican Rob Portman that he will not seek a third term next year was major news, not only in the Buckeye State, but nationally as well. Howard Wilkinson is a senior political analyst for radio station WVXU in Cincinnati. Before that, he covered Ohio campaigns for the Cincinnati Inquirer for three decades. 
and he's here to give us the scoop on Portman's decision. Howard, it's always great to hear your voice. Yeah, good to talk to you. You know, I was I was surprised by Portman's announcement, but I think I was most struck by his reason for retiring. Let me read something from his statement here. It said, It has gotten harder and harder to break through the partisan gridlock and make progress on substantive policy, and that has contributed to my decision. We live in an increasingly polarized country where members of both parties are being pushed further to the right and further to the left, and that means too few people who are actively looking to find common ground. This is not a new phenomenon, of course, but a problem that has gotten worse over the past few decades. Howard, I, I think it's fair to say that it will continue to get worse when you have people like Rob Portman leaving the Senate. Yeah, that's not going to help anything at all. But I'll take him at his word. I mean, he has always been a very non-confrontational type politician. He does have a fairly good record of working across the aisle with people on, on issues where you know, they can find common ground. Uh, he, he did so for uh, on many occasions with uh, the Democratic senator from Ohio, Sherrod Brown, who was a uh, liberal Democrat, populist type. And they found a lot of issues in which they could agree. Now, you know, and, and I know Rob Portman. I've known him since the beginning of his political career, which started back in the uh, administration of George H.W. Bush. And he's always been that way. Let me let me throw out a different narrative for you and tell me if you agree with it. Um, I agree that, you know, Portman has this moderate image uh, you know, he's, you know, the epitome of the party establishment. He's one of the few Republicans whose image, now that's what I think, whose image is one of seeking compromise and working across party lines. But I wonder, and again, I'm thinking out loud here, Howard, and help me along with this, but I wonder if his image is more about partisan, about nonpartisanship than the record really is, because basically... He pretty much voted with President Trump for much of the past four years, much more than many other Republicans. And he was there to stymie President Obama for most of those uh, eight years. Well, you're you're absolutely correct about that. I mean, he, he was with Trump all the way on many, many issues, on most issues. And uh, very rarely would uh, say anything uh, negative about something that uh, Donald Trump had said or, or did. So let me go back to the question, who is Rob Portman? Is he this compromiser, this will, this guy willing to work across party lines, or is he just a, a right-winger with a, with a smiling face? I, I'm, be, I'm being serious here. Well, he can be both. You know, he is, sometimes he is the, the right-winger with a smiling face, and other times he is willing to compromise but with uh, Democrats and work with them. But... I think in this case, in the case of uh, Donald Trump, there was uh, a considerable amount of trepidation on his part, knowing that with the 2022 election coming up and him uh, thinking about a third term, that crossing Donald Trump on anything, on, on anything, would have provoked a kind of a reaction that would have uh, resulted in a really serious primary challenge on the Republican side here back in Ohio, because, you know, Donald Trump has been known to do that. He threatened that against uh, uh, Governor Mike DeWine, Republican. 
And I don't think, and Rob Portman just, I'm not sure, I don't know if in his heart of hearts he thought that he could, he could fight off a challenge from, a, from say, a Jim Jordan type Republican, a real Trump acolyte and a, and a firebrand type, or not. Some have suggested that with the pressures of re-election now behind him, he might be free to vote to convict Trump in the Senate impeachment trial, which begins next week. What say you? I think he is free, and he's free to do that, and he may well do that. I don't expect him to. He, the only thing I've been able to get out of him or his uh, staff is that you know, he will listen to the evidence and make up his mind. He will uh, be an, an impartial juror. Yeah, but 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 he but he also voted with uh, with uh, Rand Paul. Exactly right? right. He did. He was one of those, uh, except you know, except for five Republican uh, senators who did not vote with Rand Paul to uh, uh, debate whether or not this was a constitutional impeachment. Uh, he he did go with Rand Paul on that. But he wanted to have it, you know, and then I got started getting signals from his staff saying, well, you know, yeah, he, want, he, want, he wants to, he has questions about the constitutionality of this. And he, uh, so that's why he voted with Rand Paul. But on the other hand, uh, if it comes to a trial, he's going to be impartial and he'll make up his mind based on the facts. So there's a certain part of Rob Portman that has always kind of wanted it both ways. He, you know, he, he wants to appease the right. He wants to keep the moderates on his side, and he just, you know, I mean, sooner or later, he just have to choose sides. Okay, so with Portman not running, let's talk about who could run on the Republican side. You mentioned earlier Jim Jordan, who's ve- the, the very Trumpian congressman, but he says he's not running. Uh, you know, he's a major power in the House, and. He might have gone into the Senate campaign as a frontrunner, at least for the nomination. Why do you think that Jordan didn't run? Uh, I think it had more to do with the fact that Trump <clears throat> appears, from what my sources are telling me, to be backing Jane Timken, the Ohio Republican Party chair, for that seat. Uh, she's very serious about running, apparently, and that Trump would back her in a primary over over and, Jim over Jim Jordan? Yes, huh. I, uh, absolutely. Uh, I think that I, I have no doubt about that. I've been told that by people who know, and he will. You know, if she gets in, he will. She will get his support, uh, no doubt. Jordan understands that. I think Jordan. You know, well, he sees himself, I guess, as, as a speaker of the House someday, which may be a little overblown, but. I, I think he understood what the score was back in Ohio. Jane Timken raised millions of dollars in 2016 for Donald Trump's presidential campaign. I saw the name of John Kasich mentioned. Um, I can't imagine that he could win a Republican primary, especially not you know having not only endorsed Joe Biden, but he appeared at that virtual Democratic convention last year. No, he's 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 done, Ken. I mean, he's as far as a candidate in Ohio uh, in a Republican primary. He couldn't survive a Republican primary. I mean, he might even, he might do better in a Democratic primary, to tell you the truth. At this point, he's just persona non grata in the 
in the Ohio Republican Party right now. Okay, on the Democratic side, um, Congressman Tim Ryan, uh, th- that name has been mentioned the most. He's always, you know, he's always been ambitious. He he briefly ran for president last year. He challenged Speaker Nancy Pelosi for her job a few years ago. He's close with organized labor. He he comes from that the kind of blue-collar district where voters have been moving to the Republican Party in recent years. I mean, I don't know if any Democrat other than Sherrod Brown could win statewide in Ohio anymore, but but Ryan seems like a strong candidate. He is the kind of populist candidate who has shown in the past that he can pull in crossover votes. Uh, he is totally focused on on job creation, putting people back to work, uh, economic issues. And that's what plays in Ohio. That's what plays in the general election. Let me play a little bit of his announcement for president from two years ago. And I will work every single day, every single day, to make your life better. I'm going to ask you to work hard every single day, too, to make your life better. But the problem today is so many people work hard and play by the rules and just still can't get ahead. They still can't get health care. They still can't get the job they need. They still can't move into the neighborhood or the school district that they want to be in. That's our problem. That's our concern together. And that's what this campaign is all about. Well, that's, that's pure Tim Ryan. I mean, that's what he is. That's how he's always campaigned. Uh, he's been in that office. Uh, he was first elected to that House seat in 2002. I think there's a certain amount of, you know, there's going to be redistricting, obviously, uh, in Ohio. And we're probably going to lose a congressional seat. I think that he's a little bit concerned that he's going to get thrown into a district with a a popular Republican uh, congressman. So this is his chance. This is his opportunity. I think he will have a primary. I don't know exactly who that's going to be yet, but there's, um, you know, because uh, the mayor of Cincinnati, John Cranley, is clearly going to run run for governor. Um, So is Nan Whaley, the mayor of Dayton, uh, she wants to run for governor, and uh, although you know it's possible she could switch over to the Senate. Amy Acton, she, you know, she she ran the state's coronavirus response last year. I never would have thought of her as a candidate, but uh, Connie Schultz, the the columnist, you know, who's married to Sherry Brown, she gave Acton a boost the other day on Twitter. What do you think about Acton as a candidate for the Senate? Well, there are, I mean, there's this kind of groundswell for uh, Amy Acton among a lot of Democrats. Uh, you know, she is a Democrat. She uh, worked, did some work in the Obama campaign in 2008. Uh, and she's never run for anything, obviously, never uh, run for office. She left early under a lot of pressure. Uh, the Ohio, the Republicans in Ohio, General Assembly were all over her for being uh, too restrictive in the, in the kind of orders that she was issuing uh, during the pandemic, the shutdown, uh, the delaying of the primary in, in 2020, and uh, she ended up quitting. But 
Connie Schultz and and I think uh, Sherrod Brown too would like to see her do this. Uh, I'm not convinced that she's going to, but I do know, and I've been told by a number of very prominent Democrats in Ohio that they have heard from her um, as you know she's trying to sort out whether or not she wants to do that. Howard Wilkinson is a senior political analyst for radio station WVXU in Cincinnati. Howard, thanks. Great stuff today, and and it's gonna be a it's gonna be a great year, political year next year. Absolutely. When she was White House press secretary, it was said that Sarah Huckabee Sanders never pretended to like, let alone respect, most reporters. I will, however, this, uh, hold on, Jim, if you'll let me finish. Uh, again, I'm not going to comment on the attorney-specific comments that I haven't seen. That's not what I said, and I, I know it's hard for you to understand, um, even short sentences, I guess, but and please don't take my words out of context. But she had the support of the president and of the conservative media. And this week, she said she hoped to parlay that experience into governor of Arkansas. I was the first White House press secretary to require Secret Service protection because of a credible, violent threat against me. We've seen violence in our streets, at a congressional baseball practice, and at our Capitol. This is not who we are as Americans. To remain free, we must have law and order and resolve our differences peacefully. The radical left solution is to impose government control and censorship from the top down. But their socialism and cancel culture will not heal America. It will only further divide and destroy us. Everything we love about America is at stake. And with the radical left now in control of Washington, your governor is your last line of defense. In fact, your governor must be on the front line. So today, I announce my candidacy for governor of Arkansas and ask for your prayers and your support. As governor, I will defend your right to be free of socialism and tyranny. I took on the media, the radical left, and their cancel culture, and I won. But while she talked about how her opponents are already going after her, she failed to say that her opponents are Republicans. The Arkansas of Dale Bumpers and Bill Clinton and David Pryor is long gone. It's a very Republican state, and it's a battle to see who could be the most conservative. Janine Parry is a political science professor at the University of Arkansas and the director of the widely acclaimed Arkansas Poll. Janine, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Oh, thank you for asking me. You know, I remember when her dad, Mike Huckabee, was first running for office. He was a folksy, aw shucks kind of candidate, you know, smiling and cracking jokes. And and he got along with the press. He's no longer that like that. And I dare say Sarah isn't either. Yes, I would say that in terms of their respective public personas, they have gone for the... Um, polished, loud, louder, sort of a louder version of polish 
some kind of you know, the, the hyperbolic speech uh, that is tending to dominate not just the right, but I would argue also the left uh, in American politics at this particular time. You know, you and I were talking just before we started recording that we both remember when Sarah, uh, Sarah Huckabee was, you know, many years ago, she was considered an up-and-coming uh, star of the Republican Party and, and very, very likable. Uh, very likable uh, in Republican circles, uh, certainly, um, but also impressive in all circles. And uh, one of her achievements very early in her career that some of your listeners might be aware of was her work as the campaign manager for John Bozeman, who was the representative um, from up in northwest Arkansas, the third U.S. House district. And they were, um, it's right at the very beginning of, of Arkansas's rapid transformation from uh, almost wholly Democrat to almost wholly Republican. Uh, Blanche Lincoln on the Democratic side was up for re-election, and there was an eight-way contest on the Republican side in that primary. And John Bozeman, who in some ways would be expected to be a leader, but she uh, led him to come out of that eight-way primary with a majority, no need for a runoff, and just mathematically uh, there were a lot of strategists on the left, the right, and the middle doffing their caps uh, at that. So she did that when she was 27 years old, um, and that was after she'd actually led some um, campus uh, initiatives. She'd successfully battled with a Democrat um, election commission that was purging from the voter rolls um, students at Washita Baptist University when she was a student there at 20 years old. So uh, she's actually a a seasoned battler at this point and a, a master uh, strategist with many more credentials under her belt than uh, I would say many who are watching her now um, uh, seem to be aware of. And when I think of her rise, you know, I mean, of course, she, she is and she'll always be the daughter of Mike Huckabee. But in a way, Mike Huckabee himself was the basically engineered the rise of the Republican Party in Arkansas. Well, I think there are folks here in Arkansas who would quibble with that. Okay. Um, Huckabee was, at least in terms of the politics of personality, a kind of Trump-like figure here, and in fact was criticized fairly vigorously uh, by those to the to the right of him um, for not doing a better job building the Republican Party, or and or for not being conservative enough. Conservative enough in many respects, he was he was the party of Huckabee. Uh, as we had the party of Rockefeller before that. It's not that he didn't really want to build a party here, but the conditions weren't right for that. Um, so actually, after he left office, the Republican Party took a, a, a dip. If it hadn't been for term limits, it would have been much worse in the state legislature. But that's something we want to keep in mind, is 2008 and 2010, other than the Bozeman win, there were many ways in which uh, those were actually very strong Democratic years, kind of the last gasp of of that particular brand of one-partyism here. Well, is it fair to say that, that Mike Huckabee remains popular in Arkansas? And is it also fair to say that um, through her job as Donald Trump's defender for two years, her numbers are, are good as well? Yes. Um, I actually tested her numbers, I want to say, around 2018, because we already had some signals she was likely to return here. Uh, and had statewide uh, aspirations uh, here in her home state. So her approval ratings, to the surprise of no one, uh, were almost identical to President Trump's approval ratings, so well over 50% uh, approval at that time. Um, I did not test her 
uh, in 2020, uh, but I will be testing her again soon. And I fully expect her to again have, as Donald Trump still does here, um, approval ratings well over well over 50 percent. You know, when when Sarah Sanders talks about failing schools and and other problems the state faces, is she actually criticizing the current governor, Asa Hutchinson, who's a Republican? I mean, that would seem to be the logical conclusion. Uh, I would say for those of us who are um, serious watchers of politics and policy, it would seem that way. Uh, but I think we just need to keep in mind that what she's doing is uh, strategic. Uh, she's talking to uh, the base voters of um, the Republican Party here, who are now the base voters for Arkansas politics generally, and they are fully nationalized. They're getting national signals. They feel like the minority party, which is so interesting because they certainly aren't in this state. And if we look at the state legislatures and governorships, of course, Republicans are better positioned for now than they have been in many decades. But if everyone's only paying attention to national politics, then she needs to position herself as a fighter, as somebody doing battle with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, et cetera. Uh, that's a, a winning move, right, from a playbook with which, um, on which she was brought up. So um, the, the rhetoric in some ways is, is quite removed uh, from the reality, as it was during the Huckabee administration. His rhetoric was always much, well, was often fierier and much more to the right than his actual governance, which is why his uh, presidential bids kept failing in the, in the primaries. Uh, he backed several tax increases here in order to support public services. Um, and so this, you know, this sort of firebrand of Republican Party politics now wasn't the way he governed. That's what I'm really curious to know is, is I wonder if um, a Sarah Huckabee Sanders will, will govern as she, as she talks. Her father's experience suggests probably not quite that. But, of course, this is a different time in American politics and therefore in Arkansas politics. You mentioned uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We saw uh, pictures of her in uh, Sarah Sanders' uh, campaign announcement video. But, of course, uh, AOC is not going to be on the ballot. Uh, It's going to be two Republicans on the ballot, uh, Lieutenant Governor Tim Griffin and and Leslie Rutledge, Rutledge, the Attorney General. I mean, I know we have some 15 months to go before the primary, but... um, these are also, uh, both Griffin and Rutledge, are established candidates having won statewide. How do you rate them as, how do you rate them as candidates? Uh, they're, they're good candidates, but uh, again, with the nationalization of, um, of American politics and Arkansas politics, um, you know, them having won statewide, I think, makes much less difference than um, Sarah Sanders having been on their television um, you know, uh, defending and, and representing uh, a political figure who remains popular here. So, um, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, certainly being the attorney general of the state would be a natural uh, stepping stone uh, to running uh, for the, the, the highest executive position in a state. But that's not necessarily what we have here. She's associated with the big time, with the spotlight, with national politics, Plus, she's got um, Huckabee is still part of um, her name. So she's really got the one-two punch of, of 
of Huckabee uh, and, and Trump uh, behind her. And the governor so far, uh, Asa Hutchinson, a longtime Republican, a Republican in the state before there were any Republicans in the 1980s, right. really built um, this party starting from nothing decades ago. Uh, he said he so far intends to to sit the race out. So those the positions of those other two, it's just there's really no way they can be as high profile as she is, despite especially Rutledge, despite her her best efforts to hitch herself to the to the same Trump wagon. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw uh, Carl Rove on Fox News the other night saying he supports uh, Lieutenant Governor Griffin, but uh, Griffin used to work for him, so that that made sense. Do you think that Trump will make a the, uh, Donald Trump will make a pre-primary endorsement? Uh, yes, he so far has signaled um, in his diminished communication capacity, uh, such as it is, he has signaled his uh, support for her for Sarah Huckabee Sanders mul- multiple times. Um, and I believe has said that he intends to come and stump for her in the state. So she just, in this state, has a, a natural a natural advantage at this point. Do Democrats have a shot anymore, or is there still a strong Democratic uh, Party without Bill Clinton and and Dale Bumpers and you know uh, David Pryor, all those legends of the past? There, there isn't for the foreseeable future. Um, indeed, we already had a supermajority Republican legislature. Uh, and it crept up a little bit. Um, this last round of elections were seven for seven in the state constitutional offices, were six for six in the congressional uh, posts. So this is where we're at. Um, one of our best known and I think sharpest uh, columnists here, John Brummett, uh, wrote now, it's been at least a year, but it sticks with me all the time, is as we were all watching this rapid and deep transformation from one party Democrat to one party Republican between 2010 and 2014, he made the comment that Arkansas seems to prefer lazy political monopolies. And that's uh, indeed what we have here for the foreseeable future. Lazy or not, uh, can you envision Sarah Huckabee Sanders as the next governor of Arkansas? Yes, I think she's well positioned to be not only the next governor of Arkansas, but Arkansas's first female chief executive, barring some unusual events. I, I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders is, is well positioned uh, to be the one, the one who, who does it here in the state. Janine Parry is a political science professor at the University of Arkansas and the director of the Arkansas Poll. She's also written two books, Women's Rights in the USA and Readings in Arkansas Politics and Government. Janine, it was great having you back on the program. Oh, I was very glad to do so. Take good care. When I feel cold, you warm me. And when I feel I can't go on, you come and hold me. It's you and me forever. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. And speaking of the store, we have new Political Junkie t-shirts, all sizes available, and Political Junkie socks as well. Did I mention Valentine's Day is coming up? Remember, if you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. 
You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. we got an impeachment trial coming up next week and more cabinet confirmations as well. A lot to process. I hope you get your COVID vaccine soon. And please stay safe and stay well. I'll see you soon. Feel and not keeping me crazy, crazy.